This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. I'm your host, Benjamin Linder. Today, we're playing an interview with Marty Gross. Based in Toronto, Marty has spent decades working in the film industry as a producer and director. With a special focus on Japan, Marty's films include Potters at Work, As We Are, and The Lover's Exile. For our conversation, we're focused mainly on Marty's work at the Minge Film Archive. The Minge movement focused on the beauty of everyday, traditional objects of all sorts. The Film Archive, which Marty founded and manages, aims to restore, enhance, and preserve footage documenting the Minge movement and its legacy in the world of ceramics. Over the past few years, Marty has been supervising the restoration and remastering of a vast collection of films from Japan, Korea, England, and the United States, covering the period from 1925 to 1976. Our conversation originally took place at ICAST-12, the International Convention of Asia Scholars, which took place virtually in August 2021. I definitely learned a lot from our conversation, and I hope you do too. Without further ado, here is Marty Gross. Marty Gross, welcome to the channel. Thanks for taking the time to sit down with me on the podcast. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. The films you're restoring for the Minge Film Archive Project depict ceramic production in 20th century Japan and Korea. But before we get into the content of those films and the archive that you're building, I actually want to start with your story. How did you become interested in film and ceramics in general? Well, as a teenager, I I took a pottery class. It was something as simple as that. And I had a very, very important and inspiring teacher. Uh, She's long since passed. But uh, like a lot of people at that period, they were... The, the only things that you could read about the new li- the lives of pottery makers were about the potters of Japan. There were some books, particularly the books by Bernard Leach, that talked about what life was like for potters, what traditional pottery in Japan, and what rather than I wasn't as much interested in looking at uh, pottery making from the point of view of curation. I was interested in pottery making and what kind of life could you live as a potter, and that led me to go to Japan to. Uh, study. I studied in Japan just for about five months because I was already quite busy here with a teaching career. Uh, and I worked in Tokoname for a while. And then about five years later, I went back and worked in Okinawa. But uh, after my first trip to Japan, I made a film about uh, the work that I was doing with children in my studio, which was called As We Are. Then when that was completed, I decided that I wanted to bring the two things together, uh, my filmmaking and my interest in ceramics. So I made the film Potters at Work, which led me on in, in directly really onto the path that I'm on now. That's when I met Bernard Leach. Yeah, I'm eager to talk about Bernard Leach and his role in the Minge movement and also how your story kind of weaves into it. The archive you're building has at least three levels of creative production. First, there's the actual output of the Minge movement itself, the pottery, the designs, and the crafts. Second is the filming of those artistic techniques. And then third is the work that you're doing currently to rescue and restore and publicize those old films. 
I'm not someone who specializes in any of this, so I wonder if you could start at the beginning for me. What is the Minge movement? When was it established? Who were its founders? What does someone like me need to know in order to understand the rest of what we're going to be talking about? Well, the Minge movement was founded in the 1920s. 1926 is when they came up with the word uh, Minge, which is a new coinage, uh, which was actually decided upon by the key philosopher and aesthetician in this movement, whose name was Yanagi Muneyoshi, or as known in the West, Yanagi Soetsu. Um, And he was a brilliant young man who had been deeply involved in promoting uh, information and knowledge about the newest in Western art in Japan in the 1920s through a group that he was a member of called the Shirakaba Group. And the Shirakaba Group was responsible for introducing Cezanne and Rodin and many, very many important literary works, particularly from Russia, Tolstoy, um, Dostoevsky. Um, And then as time went on, he developed a strong interest through his visits to Korea. He developed a very strong interest in objects used for daily life. And he changed his focus away from, um, you know, searching outside of Asia to searching inside of Asia. And um, Korea was exceedingly important to him because he had been invited there to look at the objects used in daily life and created for use in daily life by the craftspeople, ordinary village craftspeople of Korea. Uh, And when he came back to Japan, he started looking in Japan as well. And he moved around Japan, began collecting, and realized that there were many, many, many rich traditions um, of craft-making all around Japan. And some of this was new for people in a certain way. These were city people I'm talking about. They were artists and intellectuals. And um, as Japan was developing its modern transportation system in the 20s, they could suddenly go out and look at and see things that they hadn't seen before. I mean, Japan is a very mountainous country, and village craftspeople, the works, most of the works that were made in localities stayed in those localities. So suddenly there was a whole new world opening up for these people, and they could see really the beauty of ordinary objects made by, shall we say, ordinary people for their neighbors, for their friends and for their neighbors. And a lot of these objects were made um, on a bartering basis. This is the the admirable thing. What they were looking at was, it was a different idea of understanding what was beautiful. And the understanding of beauty, the creation of beauty in a Western sense, as we think of this, is is, is a result of effort and as a result of Deliberation and, and the result of great trying and, and a result of, to some extent, a result of its suffering. The, the artist is seen as a sufferer, whereas this is a radical, radically different way of looking at things. This is like beautiful things are created by ordinary people uh, for use by people like themselves. And because they have a deep, deep, deep knowledge of their own work and their own subject and their own materials, which are always local, because that's all you could do, that the beauty of craftsmanship emerged and could be seen through this new idea of looking at things that were right in front of you, ordinary things that were just, you were using every day, and were made by people who understood 
how they were going to be used. That's great. Thank you. What are some of the types of objects and traditional crafts and techniques that they were interested in specifically? Well, they, they studied everything amazingly. And um, the reason I'm concentrating on pottery is that because that's my background. Um, and also pottery was much more seductive to film. I mean, to be honest, when people were making films, it's a little harder to make films about lacquer making and uh, weaving and other crafts which take a long time and of which there are many, many steps. Pottery making, of course, is so magical to watch that uh, it was easy and very seductive for presentation on film. But Yanagi was deeply interested in textiles. Uh, he was not the only one. He was deeply... Furniture... They were very interested in furniture. Furniture was also coming into Japan in a new way, and they they looked out to the furniture of Western cultures because um, chairs and tables were new in Japan. Everybody used to sit on the floor. Now people were sitting rooms, offices, schools needed chairs, they needed tables. So um, they searched everywhere. In fact, they did a lot of searching in Europe. There's a lot of stories about how uh, Yanagi's colleague Hamada and he used to buy furniture in Spain. And um, they were very interested in shaker furniture as well, the woodwork done by the shaker culture in America. So they looked at many things. They looked at wood carving. They looked at uh, lacquer making, textiles. So there was not anything made by hand interested them. Yeah, this is a good time to bring in Bertrand Leach, perhaps. So... This is a British guy who somehow becomes instrumental in the Minge movement, or at least its uh, publicity outside of Japan. So who was Mr. Leach, and how does he enter the story? Well, it should be explained that Bernard Leach was born in Hong Kong, and um, his mother died when he uh, at his birth, and he was then uh, raised by his grandparents in uh, Kyoto. So he lived until he was about eight years old, eight or nine years old, in Kyoto. And um, then he moved back to England to go to school for his schooling. And somehow, and he became an art student at Slade School, a, a highly gifted draftsman, Bernard Leach was, as, as is evident in his etchings and his drawings and his drawings on pots as well. And uh, when he was uh, approaching his 20s, he really felt the need to go back to Japan. He wanted to see Japan. He remembered it, I suppose. And luckily, he in a bank in London, he met um, a sculptor and poet named Takamura Kotaro, who was just visiting the bank. And Takamura was a very, very well-known person in Japan who was a member of this Shirakaba group. So Takamura introduced him to the Shirakaba group, of which Yanagi was really one of the key members, even though he was the youngest. And they became close friends, and Leach encountered pottery making through his association with the Shirakaba members. And Leach was also a very gifted writer and a very gifted speaker. So in the Minge movement in the West, he became a kind of spokesperson for the Minge movement. Uh, in his book, A Potter's Book, which has been called by many people a Bible for potters, and the Potter's Book, uh, Potter's Book was is still in print. It's I think it was has been published in 22 different countries over the years. And uh, he also wrote a book called The Potter in Japan about his sojourn in Japan in the 50s, which is how I learned about the films that he had made. And 
Um, so Bernard Leach's role in this, in a way, was organizer and spokesperson when um, Yanagi and Hamada, the, the great potter Hamada and Kawai, the Kyoto potter, visited England and Europe. Leach was always involved, and he organized their tours. They traveled together in America, all across America, in, in 1952, introducing the, their ideas, int- demonstrating pottery, introducing their ideas of Menge. And the writings of Hamada and of Yanagi, in particular, were not available until the 70s in English. So Leach's role in the 50s and 60s and 70s really solidified him as the spokesperson. When you mentioned Minge, you first thought of Bernard Leach, and then after, outside of Japan, uh, you first thought of Bernard Leach, because he was telling us about Yanagi and the great potter Hamada and Kawai and the other artists of the Minge movement. Yeah, that's great. And we'll come back to your connection with Bernard Leach in just a second. One thing that came to mind as I was reading in preparation for our conversation was a kind of dichotomy whereby, as you say, the Minge movement was deeply concerned with everyday traditional local objects. And yet at the same time, or on the other hand, it was also very much a product of its time and a product of a time that was rapidly modernizing and rapidly globalizing. So I wonder, I know, I hope this isn't an unfair question, given that you're not primarily a historian, but could you just say something about the historical moment in which the Minge movement arises? Why do you think this interest in folk crafts emerges when it does? Well, the 1920s in Japan, Japan was experiencing, continued experiencing rapid industrialization. And as I referred earlier, they were developing railways and transportation, methods of transportation and transportation of goods all across the country. And people were discovering, people in Japan themselves were discovering what a rich and varied tradition they had of local arts and crafts and things that they hadn't been able to Japan as I said earlier Japan is a very mountainous country people in Tokyo didn't necessarily know what was going on in Kyushu Um, they were aware of it of course but goods didn't make it because there was no way to transport them now all of a sudden there were ferries there were ships there were railways there were Roads, so people could actually examine and go and visit these places in order to understand what was going on. And in terms of Korea, I mean, Korea was colonized by Japan in the early part of the 20th century, and um, so this, for better or worse, allowed the Japanese to go to Korea easily and to explore it. Um, Yanagi came out very strongly against some aspects of the colonization of Korea and was a big defender of Korean culture, including the preservation of a Korean language and preservation of Korean historical monuments. Um, Yanagi started a museum in the 1930s at the major national palace in Seoul, the Korea Folkcraft Museum. And uh, so, but this was the, also the historical context. They were the um, it was part of the imperial period of Japan, to be sure. And, and later on, after the war, when there was a segment of society that was interested in thinking about what to do with themselves uh, when the war was over, and many people were became curious about working with their hands, and there was a lot of um, movement to train people to do all sorts of crafts and arts, New schools were being started, schools of ceramics, schools of crafts, 
were being started all over America in particular. And um, so there was a need for literature. There was a need for understanding, not just a need for technique, but a need for, like, not only how to do it, but why to do it. What, what was the meaning of it? What, how would it help us create a, a new and better society? What do you see as the legacy of the Minge movement today? Was this sort of a particular, unique historical movement, or do you see resonances that are still with us? Well, I think that the, the Minge movement is, uh, is with us, <laughs> uh, continues to be with us. And the reason I say this is that um, there continued to be interest in handmade goods, handmade items. And now, we, as we feel that we're losing how to do all these things, and we're losing the people who did them, who did these things, there is a, an attempt to revive. Of course, how one can revive things is another matter. Um, what the Minge movement people were talking about was people in villages, mostly, or in, small, in towns, making ordinary things that were used by ordinary people, as I said. And now we kind of have to conjure all this up in our modern society. We have to create for ourselves reasons for doing things. So uh, the social context is different for us. But I think the need is still there. I think we, we and now, especially when we're facing this pandemic, um, when we're all enduring this worldwide pandemic, we, we are sitting and looking at what's around us partly because we have no choice. And one of the underpinning ideas of the Minge movement is um, the use of local materials. And the reason part of this, this was kind of a rule in a sense that, that they had. And one of the reasons for this was there was a strong feeling that every local, every material that you touch has, you know, both its qualities and its limitations. And th those deep, constant repetition and practice allowed you to make good use of the limitations as well as the qualities of the materials on hand. Not, not just, well, this doesn't work, so let's buy something else. You know, they had to really, people, it, potters had to learn how to use the clay that they had on hand and the glazed materials they had on hand, because that's all they had. Now, here we are faced with, well, uh, what we have is what's right here, you know, of course, we also have Amazon to help us get whatever we need. But on the other hand, I think we, you know, we're experiencing, a, um, um, we're trying to um, understand how to experience these new limitations. Yeah. And one other way I can think of that the Minge movement endures is exactly through the work that you're doing to restore and publicize all of this old footage of the potters and their techniques. Which brings us to the films themselves. First, I wonder if you could just say something about the context in which this footage was produced originally, and then also how you came to sort of stumble on this trove of films and stumble on this archive, which you're now restoring and publicizing. Well, I didn't stumble onto this archive. I, I put it together. So every film in the archive, and there are more than 50 hours of films now, um, I either stumbled on or I found or, or I sought out. So these films are acquired 
at or located or found by me as a, something that I've built over these years. Um, now, what I was trying to do is when we read these stories about how people used to work, it all sounds very, you know, fascinating and romantic. And the storytelling is fascinating and romantic. But I, I realized that I had a unique opportunity to sh actually show people what it looked like and help them feel what it was like by adding oral histories to all these films. So each of the films in the collection came to me in different ways. So just to make a brief list, I, I have a very important film from the Korean Film Archive. I have film material from the Smithsonian Film Archive, from the Australian Film Archive, from the National Archive Film Archive of New Zealand. Um, the films that came to me from Bernard Leach came, were the first um, and the National Film Archive of, of Japan as well, of course. So um, the films that came to me from Bernard Leach, I sought out. That was in 1975. I was reading his book, A Potter in Japan, and so far I've never found anybody else who noticed this sentence. There was a sentence in there that said, where, where he says, where I, I, re, I showed the films that I had made in, in 1930s, when I visited Mashiko. I thought, well, Bernard Leach made films? I mean, who would have thought Bernard Leach made films? So, and no one else seems to have noticed this, but just as well. So uh, when I was planning my own film, Potters at Work, I decided to uh, contact Leach because it crossed my mind at the time that I could use his footage and mine together in some way you know, to insert or, you know, to cut back and forth from past to present. I ultimately decided not to do that, and I made quite a different film from what I had originally been thinking. But um, at the time, I went to visit Leach. Leach was going quite blind already at that point, and this was 1975. But he and his wife, Janet, very happily actually gave me the films, uh, with the understanding that I would restore them and I would provide them back with a copy. Those days, of course, it was only analog. So if you made a copy, it was a, fil a, a film copy, a 16-millimeter copy of a 16-millimeter film. And this was quite a restoration project, but luckily I was able to get help from the Smithsonian and also the National Film, uh, film and Sound Archive in Canada. And uh, so I was able to see the films myself after I had made copies. The originals were, are far too delicate to project. I was able to see the copies and I understood a little bit of the context and what was shown in the film. So when I went back to talk to Bernard Leach, I was able to record our conversations and I was, even though he was blind and couldn't see the films, he was able to, you know, I sparked his memory by telling him what I saw. And those recordings have become a, an essential part of my project. I've used those recordings uh, on one of the films that's showing during the conference, uh, which is called Bernard Leach Films Mashigo and Other Pottery Villages. Um, so, and then each film after that has another story. This will go on for too long, but the, um, uh, there's a film from 1940 from Okinawa, which was the, the culture and crafts of Okinawa were highly prized by the Minge founders. They went frequently. They made a film in 1940 in, in uh, Okinawa, and I have that film. 
the uh, film uh, going back to Korea, the film from 1924, Potters from In the Land of the Morning Calm, was made by uh, Benedictine uh, Abbott uh, Norbert Weber with a handheld 35mm camera in the field. And I um, was able, through my relationship with uh, the Korean Film Archive, I, w- I found out that uh, they had restored all of the outtakes. They had found all the outtakes of the film in a church basement in uh, Germany. And this was only about four years ago. And they gave me access to the material. And and the film that I've made is actually new in the sense that the footage has never been seen, except for approximately three minutes, had actually never been seen and used. And on top of all this, what I'm trying to do is we still have the opportunity to talk to people who, in a certain sense, were there, who experienced life as it's depicted in the films. So I go now with, because of digital technology, I have the opportunity to to work with people quite intimately. I can sit with a potter in, in his home with a quiet machine and a microphone and, a, and my laptop and show films to that person and get that person to comment and reminisce and explain. And so I've done that for um, approximately 40 films so far in Japanese and in English. Yeah, in terms of the older films that you're restoring, for listeners who may not have had a chance yet to look at the film archive and the, the footage that you've made publicly available, could you just say something about what these films actually depict, what's actually on them? And moreover, do you have a sense of who the imagined audience for these films originally was? Who were they being shot and produced for? I call this the Minge Film Archive, but my main... Uh, area of interest and knowledge is pottery making. However, uh, volume two, if and when I get to that, will be about uh, textile making, because I also have a lot of material, film material on textile making. Um, Now, I can imagine my audience, but I'm not sure that I can necessarily tell you too much about what the audiences were at the time. For people, I think some of it was made for record-keeping, um, the the film uh, made by Norbert Weber in Korea did play in cinemas in Germany, in Hamburg, I know for sure. Uh, and I believe it was quite popular. It was an exotic look at, at Korea and what the, what the Benedictine um, missionaries were doing in Korea to educate or to convert the Korean people at that time. Uh, the film that Bernard Leach made, I believe he made it to share his fascination with Japan and to show them, to show Western people, to create a visual document to accompany his lecture tours. So Leach traveled in Scandinavia and in Europe. I, I, one thing I've not been able to find is records of Bernard Leach actually showing the films. He mentions showing films in different places, but I've never managed to find any information about how people may have reacted. But these would have been the films that Bernard Leach made would have been the very first uh, images of uh, Japanese craftsmen, of Oriental craftsmen, moving images of Oriental craftsmen at work. Um, In the film that he made, he does a a very long um, 
he spends a lot of time filming a, a Japanese noborigama, Japanese climbing kiln, and he was the first person to build the Japanese-style climbing kiln in Europe. And uh, this was important documentation for him, I believe. In other cases, some of the films are documentaries that were made for educational use in universities and colleges. Uh, the Working Craftsman of the Korean Folk Potter was a film that was quite well-known and well-circulated among pottery schools all across America in the 70s. That was made in 1974. Another film, The Art of the Potter, uh, about Hamada and Leach, was made by American filmmakers Sidney Reichman and David Outerbridge. Uh, it was shown on PBS, it was shown on BBC, and it was circulated in the art schools. It was also circulated as part of MoMA's uh, film circuit. Um, and I got that, not only did I get that film, but I got all the outtakes of that film. So I got nine hours of footage that they had shot and kept, but never been able to use. And I've been able to make 12 new films already from the outtake footage. So again, it's a new experience for people. And as for who's going to watch this now, I mean, I'd like to hear from people who's going to watch it now. I think it's, a, to me, it, it sh it's a, a, a visual record of, it allows us to imagine how things get made. And I, for one, when I look at things, am always curious about how things get, get made. Yeah, and on that note, as we begin to wrap up our conversation here, I wanted to ask whether, as you built this huge archive and restore all of these old films, was there any particular moment or any particular piece of footage that you could maybe talk about here that stuck with you or, or had a particular impact on you as you went through it? I'm going to answer that question a little bit differently from the way you've asked it. I'm going to tell you one story. I went to, uh, to Mashiko. There's a film, the very key film in this project is made by the Kokusai Bunka Shinkokai in 1937, the KBS, which was a cultural agency in Japan. Um, and I call it Mashiko Village Pottery 1937. Um, and I went to visit the grandson of the house, the home where that... and pottery studio where that film was taken, one of the two homes in which that, studios in which that film was taken. His name is Sakuma Fujiya. I went to visit him. He was a man, I guess, in his early 50s. Uh, this would be six years ago, maybe seven years ago. And, you know, I called him to say, I have this film, and I showed it. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know about that film. I have a video copy, which somebody had given him. He hadn't realized that it was available. The video copy actually was something that I had put out. So I went to visit him with, my, with, my, with, a, with the film and then my notebook. And my idea was, I'm going to write notes, and then I'm going to write a, a narrative here. I'm going to learn what he has to say and understand what he tells me about what he's looking at, and then I am going to tell the story. I'm going to write a narrative. But about halfway into this, I thought to myself, oh my, no, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do is let him tell his own story. Because who could do better? There's no substitute for the human voice. And there is no substitute for the, for the human voice of the person who actually knows what he's talking about. And um, it turns out that he also is a great storyteller, has a wonderful voice, and that helped. So I told him, I said, no, I'm coming back, I'm going to record your voice, and you're going to be the narrator. 
And he laughed. And no, 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 you know, but he, he wanted to do it. And the result is actually, I think, quite a brilliant story. And then I moved on to meeting other people. And I found that, of course, everybody, not everybody is a gifted storyteller and not everybody, uh, you know, has a broadcast quality voice like Mr. Sakuma has. But, you know, the authenticity and the sense of being there that they provide is something that I am very satisfied with, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm happy and proud that I was able to, that I have been able to find people to cooperate with me in telling these stories and in reviving these films in this way. Your work on these films is ongoing, and the Minge Film Archive is still being developed as we speak. I'm sure you have much more footage left to discover and restore. So for my last question, just as we wrap up, I wonder, where are you in that timeline? Where do you see the future of this project going? Do you think it's the kind of thing that will ever reach a conclusion, or will it continue expanding indefinitely as more footage and topics emerge? Well, uh, I, I feel that I am coming to the conclusion of what I have managed to, uh, of the films that I have managed to find so far. Uh, I'm working now on a slideshow on the beautiful pottery village of Tamba, and I am planning to expand. I have uh, films that the Korean, the man who made the working processes of the Korean folk potter, Ron Dubois, who is now 95 years old, a professor of at Oklahoma State University, um, has asked me to restore his films on African ceramics and Indian ceramics. And these are an extension of the idea of Minge, and they do fit in because the potters that we see in India and in Africa are uh, producing objects for ordinary people, water jars, plates, platters, drinking cups, beautiful work, and I have access to all the raw material. We're also fundraising at all times. I feel the urge to mention this, and every time I'm given the opportunity, we're always fundraising. Uh, the fundraising is going well, but we, we can always use more, and more money would allow us to do to get more work done faster. Once the pottery is completed, I may move on to textiles because I have a lot of material on textiles. So I don't anticipate this project being completed um, anytime soon. That was Marty Gross, who founded and oversees the Minge Film Archive Project. For more information about Marty's work, visit martygrossfilms.com. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based in Leiden, the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we'd love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.